Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariash, and thank you for tuning in. I hope everyone is staying home and taking care of themselves and staying safe and healthy. Today, we're bringing you a podcast that was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic hit. It's an interesting topic, and we hope you will welcome it as a non-virus conversation. Today, I'm joined by Deborah Dash Moore, the editor-in-chief of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization. The library has just published the sixth volume in its series on Jewish culture and civilization, titled Confronting Modernity, 1750 to 1880, edited by Elisheva Karlbach through Yale University Press. Today, Deborah will be discussing the details of this newest volume. She'll also be discussing the Posen Digital Library. Deborah Dash Moore is the Frederick G. L. Hutwell Professor of History and Professor of Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. She's also the author of several books, including G.I. Jews, How World War II Changed a Generation. The first scholar of our organization's history, Professor Dash Moore published B'nai B'rith and the Challenge of Ethnic Leadership in 1981 as part of the State University of New York's series, in modern Jewish history. Going back to our inception in 1843, she focuses on what set B'nai B'rith apart from other Jewish philanthropies and documents the accomplishments of B'nai B'rith's leaders whose challenges and decisions are contextualized against the political and social events that brought about change in American society. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Well, let's begin with... um, you're providing us with an overview of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization. What is the aim of this multi-volume publication, and what kind of audience do you intend to reach? So the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization had its origin back over a decade ago. Um, In many ways, it was a response to the life experience of Felix Posen, Um, who was born in Berlin uh, and then uh, left Berlin when the Nazis came to power and grew up mostly in New York City, went to Johns Hopkins, became a successful businessman. And later in his life, he became interested in learning more about the uh, uh, anti-Semitism that had so affected his life. He had lived as a a child and young man as an Orthodox Jew, observant Jew. And in the process of learning more about anti-Semitism, he met a number of leading Israeli scholars who introduced him to a wider way of thinking about Jewish culture that was not just grounded in religious practice. So he convened a, a conference of scholars from the US and from Israel to explore what would be the possibility of making available the riches of Jewish culture and civilization in English for other Jews who also, like himself, did not necessarily only want to experience Judaism as a religious culture, but much more broadly. And the scholars were intrigued by the idea. There is a long uh, history of 
anthologizing uh, within Jewish tradition. I mean, probably, you know, the Bible is one example of it. Um, another example that everyone knows is the Haggadah, which pulls together selections from a lot of different sources in order to make a specific single text. So in some ways, the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization is drawing upon this anthologizing tradition of Jews, but bringing it to open up um, and make accessible the enormous diversity of Jewish culture and civilization um, for Jews, but also for anyone who is uh, potentially interested in how a group that was for most of its history a minority um, managed to not just survive, but to create incredibly diverse um, and fascinating forms of culture. Did the book's uh, organizing principle, that is the inclusion of work created during a specific time period, time frame, make a big difference to the editors? And, right. and did, it, did it change the way that they thought about the Jewish experience? And, and how were the time parameters of these eras uh, determined? So those are really um, tough questions because I was not involved in the initial discussions uh, of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization. I only came on uh, later when they were looking for someone to do the most recent time period, which began in 1980 um, and ran up through, at that point, 2005. Some divisions of time make sense. Um, there is a, the first volume essentially draws on biblical materials. The second volume runs up until the year 600. And there was debate among um, scholars about where to end it. Do, do you include in the second volume, which has a material from uh, the Second Temple period, all the way up through uh, rabbinic writings. Uh, do you go as far as Islam? Um, or do you stop and then let the third volume deal with the issues uh, with Islam, as well as with Christianity as established um, movements? So I'm not quite sure about how the decisions were made. Um, I do know that it definitely affected how the editors thought about their volume. Um, as the editor, co-editor of volume 10, we took 1973 as a turning point year in Israel, in the U.S. I mean, in Israel, it was the Yom Kippur War. In the U.S., it was um, uh, Watergate and Nixon's uh President Nixon's departure. There were other sort of traumatic events happening at the same time. Um, Salvador Allende was assassinated in 1973 as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it affected how we thought about it. And I'm assuming that Elisheva Karbach, when she thought about volume six, starting in 1750, going to 1880, that that where all kinds of possibilities opened up for Jews. Uh, and they experimented with a lot of new forms of culture that they had not engaged in before. 
Well, glancing through the pages of the books, particularly uh, Volume 6, and I'd like to talk about Volume 10 in, in a moment, uh, but Volume 6, Confronting Modernity, devoted to literature, uh, varieties of musical genres and, and the visual arts, including B'nai B'rith's Religious Liberty Monument, uh, dating to between the mid-18th to the late 19th centuries, I see a lot of amazing material that perhaps was undiscovered prior to its inclusion. Um, did the the editors uh, unearth hidden treasures for the readers? Were they looking for, for new material uh, or organizing everything simply that, that already we knew about? And um, do you think advancements in publishing, that is, the dissemination of journals and magazines uh, affect the cultural landscape of the latter part of that era? A whole bunch of really great questions. And, uh, you know, the Religious Liberty Monument is um, one of those great... Thinking about it in the context of Jewish culture, um, it, was, it was, you know... A st- put up in in the United States, but for many um, volumes that look at this time period, there's a tendency not to include the United States as part of Jewish culture. So, you know, the story of that vo- that volume is is really interesting. The the architect, the uh, sculptor who did it, and then where he he did, he did it, which was in Europe, and then where it gets established in Philadelphia. Well, that's sort of one example. Um, but you ask about whether there were um, new un- unearthed treasures. Um, and I would say definitely yes. Sometimes those treasures were things that were known specifically to scholars, um, but not translated into English and thus not accessible. So, for example, there is a very um, powerful um letter that uh, a woman, Rele Lutzato Morshene, writes um, to the chief rabbi, Rafael Natan Tedesco of Trieste in 1794. And why is she writing to the chief rabbi? She's writing because her husband has syphilis and she wants a divorce. And Jewish women, as I'm sure you, you know, could not initiate divorce. Um, but she was in a modern city of Trieste. And Trieste had created a new category of civil divorce. So she had civil divorce, but she wanted the religious divorce because she wanted to remarry. So it, it's it's a really interesting letter that way. Now, scholars knew about it, but it had never been available in English before. And now we get a sense of sort of women's agency. Another example that I really love is on the following page, which is um, a register of a Jewish midwife, uh, Rosa. Uh, She's a midwife who kept track in Hebrew, in Yiddish, and in Dutch of all of the births that she uh, oversaw. And in this book, she writes a a prayer prayer, um, that... Uh, the Lord shall um, give her uh, and not let my hands falter when I am engaged in this profession. So we see now that midwives, and, and 
on some level, we must have always known, yeah, of course, there were Jewish midwives. But now we see these midwives and, and can recognize them as part of Jewish culture. It's not just the biblical <laughs> midwives, right, in the Exodus story. But there are midwives who were trained, they were educated, they kept records. Um, it's, you know, in, in her case, in three languages. So there are these wonderful um, uh, materials here. And certainly the rise of a, of a popular press um, in the 19th century also becomes really um, important. I'll give you an, an, an American example. You know, um, at the time of the Civil War, Jews um, were enthusiastic supporters of both uh, the Union and the Confederacy, depending on their politics and most often depending on where they lived. There are two sermons um, written by rabbis, um, one in favor of slavery, or rather, I should say, one that gives a justification for slavery based on the Bible, and the other one um, that rejects uh, slavery. Now, what's interesting about these two um, sermons, because they were both published right, in the popular press and, and spread out, is that there's also um, a Polish Jew writing in Polish for a Polish newspaper about this debate. He's writing about the Civil War and about slavery and about Jewish involvement in it. And while he is anti-slavery, and so that's his point of view, he recognizes that what he's seeing with Jews on both sides of this struggle is that Jews are now acting very much like Christians. They're ready to fight each other. And he thinks that that's a, a, a good sign of the modern world. Now, this is uh, this series is is not an encyclopedia. It's it's something else. Um, right. I I found you can open these books to any page, um, and just find uh, really fascinating information. Now there was a letter that was written by a peddler, um, I believe, in the 1840s, and he was a peddling Jewish peddler. Uh, my grandfather was a peddler in the backwoods of Maine, uh, and um, he uh, wrote about his his trip through uh, Ma central Massachusetts, northern Massachusetts, north central, mm -hmm. not far from where I grew up. I was raised in New Hampshire, and he talks about Lemonster and Lunenburg and Sterling, Massachusetts, places not far from where I grew up, and um, talked about peddling in, in that area. And um, this is just uh, a name, not a household name, uh, but a fascinating insight into uh, what uh, many Jews were, were doing when they arrived in this country. And I, I think that this is true for, for this, the books that, that I have looked through in, in the series, that um, really, just page by page, uh, the information that's been assembled is is really quite something. And I think that, as you said, of course, for our own community, this is important. But I think also for those who are not Jewish, um, this will be a tremendous resource uh, about who we have been and who we are. And are you getting that kind of, of reaction already? 
Oh, yes. I've done a, a couple of um, radio talks, and people are really interested. And the, the people I've been speaking with are from various parts of the country, often sections uh, that are, are not particularly Jewish, um, Sonoma, California, and, you know, uh, parts of the Midwest and stuff. And there's a, a lot of interest in it. Just to, to go back to your to your peddler, um, one of the peddlers, I don't know whether it's um, the guy that you found was Abraham Cohn, but um, he writes in, in this um, uh, journal that he kept, um, last Thursday was Thanksgiving Day, a general holiday fixed by the, by the governor for the inhabitants of Massachusetts. Yet it seems to be merely a formal observance coldly carried through with nothing like genuine about it. To the American, one day is like another. And even Sunday, their only holiday, is a mere form. They often go to church here, but only to show the neighbor's wife a new veil or dress. I mean, you know, it's a really interesting observation. Perceptive. Perceptive, probably yeah. for, a, for a recent immigrant. Yes, he was the one that, that, uh, that I was referring to. Um, one other thing that I, I noticed, which is extremely important, is that the the Sephardic world is is very much included in uh, in, in these volumes, and um, that's a an important um, advance in terms of giving the entire scope of uh, of, of Jewish life, um, not only here, of course, in this country, but uh, in the Sephardic world, which made up so much. Of, uh, of the Jewish population, Jewish community. Um, I would think uh, that there would also be great interest uh, from Sephardic organizations and people in the Sephardic community as well. Yes, I think that that's true. They're, they're really pleased because we, you hit on a, a very important point, and that is that this is not meant to be just about Ashkenazi Jews. It is really meant to encompass the whole world. So we do have um, Sephardic Jews included, Ottoman Jews, North African Jews. We have Jews um, in the islands of the Caribbean. Um, you know, wherever Jews live, uh, they are part of this volume. And a lot of effort was made to include representative examples of their writings and um, occasionally their their music and their art, etc., which was really, really great. I want to go back to uh, volume 10, uh, which you touched on uh, a little bit okay. earlier. It's such a mammoth uh, volume in, in comparison with volume 6. Um, did you find that you needed to include more material than you had planned for and that it had to be expanded because of the time frame involved? In other words, you're, you're writing really real time. 1973 is, is real time. Um, and with all that's, that's available uh, today in terms of all that's been published, research, um, that you, you simply couldn't leave certain things out? So I think one of the things we decided to do, and you're right, it's like twice as thick as volume six, is we decided to expand the understanding of what constituted culture. So we include in volume 10 um, something like children's literature. 
both for both picture books and for what's called young adult. Um, we include cookbooks. We include um, uh, other elements of popular culture, comics and stuff that had not necessarily initially been imagined as part of uh, the culture. And that led to a, a larger volume. Also, because it's in real time, you know, you don't have uh, the distance, the historical distance, which lets some things sort of rise to the top and, and others uh, become uh, less uh, critically appreciated. And so we were relatively generous in um, including a wide variety of, of voices. Well, if I were to describe the project, I, I might say that the editors have really become curators, uh, kind of conceiving of the entries in each volume as in some way distilling both changes and perhaps even the refusal to change in a time of upheaval and new experiences in each era. Would that be a, a correct assumption? Yes, I think that that's, that's definitely true. Um, in some ways, Elisheva Karlbach writes... writes in her um, introduction that this was an effort um, to really create a, a version of a library, and in that sense, a curated library. Um, and she is your guide <laughs> to it. Um, she says um, near the end of her introduction, what opens before you, dear reader, is a panorama of hope and of passion for the world. There are many entry points. Each selection stands in its own right. Taken as a whole, I hope you find these riches from the past as provocative, amusing, and moving as I did. So it's a, an invitation for people to enter as it were, a library, a curated library, with selections drawn from famous works as well as from works that are not as well known. Well, there's a, uh, a section in the, in the book, uh, in, in volume 10, called Visual Culture. And I, I must say, uh, to, to borrow a, a term used by reviewers, uh, the, book, the books are lavishly illustrated, beautiful illustrations. Um, and, the, and the quality of the printing and the reproduction and so forth. But in, in visual culture, that must have been um, a very interesting project in terms of, of what you selected uh, to put in. Tell us about that. Yes. So we made a choice in Volume 10 to mix the media, as it were, to have paintings uh, together with photographs, together with sculpture, together with architecture, um, not together with also um, what might be considered more craft kinds of items or, or even ritual items. And that's a decision that not all of the other volumes followed. One of the things that I find really powerful is what happens when you use the chronology, because that's a guiding principle of all the volumes. You move within a genre across time. And so, you know, in 1980, um, there are three very different um, images 
that are on facing pages, it's page 528, um, a photograph that Bruce Davidson takes of young women in the subway with multiple hands holding onto the, the bar. It's a crowded subway. And then below it, this photograph by Nan Golden of herself, a self-portrait taken um, in a bathroom. And you just see her distantly. So the, the cluster of women in the subway versus the single woman alone. And then on, on the page facing it, a piece by Alain Kirilli uh, uh, called Commandment Two, sort of a reflection on the making of images. And it's just, it's really wonderful to be able to, to look at these together and the ways in which they comment on each other um, and reflect different points of view of uh, by Jews when they think about images, whether it's images of themselves or of people on the subway or abstractly the concept of images. So I have one volume in front of me here, um, but people who want to, to read this and see it digitally, uh, how do they do that? So if they go to posenlibrary.com, Posen Library is one word, all lowercase, they can see all of this material all they have to do is register and it's free to register and everything we've been talking about is up there online this is uh, hosted by Yale University Press but if you write in posenlibrary.com it will take you there um, and you'll have a lot of fun looking at all this material and finally Deborah what is your next project so my next project, uh, but this one isn't done yet. Okay. Uh, what is the next? What is the project after this one? The project after this one is a, a project um, tentatively called Walkers in the City, uh, Jewish Street Photographers of New York. And I'm going to be looking at the ways in which these street photographers pictured the city in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, in those, those middle decades of the century. Well, kind of human city they give us. Yes. We'll, we'll definitely be looking forward to that, I can tell you. A lot of heads are nodding around the table here, so we're, oh, looking, we're looking forward to it. Our discussion today has been about the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization, and our guest has been Professor Deborah Dash Moore. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today. We're deeply appreciative, and we wish you the best on this and everything that follows. Well, thank you, and um, it was really fun to share um, what these volumes are about with someone who's so interested. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast today. Please visit our website, benabrith.org, like our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Deborah Dash Moore, I'm Dan Mariasha. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. <laughs>